that's always like the worst. Like, I don't know. I grew up with like shitty snowstorms and just being poor, where my dad didn't pay the bill, so we just get like the random shut off sometimes. And yeah, in the winter, no problem. Just throw everything yeah, in the fucking snow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, we were like fucked. Anyway. Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. Woo woo! I don't know. The train <laughs> sound. Yeah. For Dune Graham. It's for Prez. Prez loves trains. I anyway. do love trains. Choo choo. Choo. <laughs> the next sound we're adding to the soundboard a train. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you all for. for coming again uh it's it's gramsci time uh it's a custom reader and i'm sorry if you can hear my little guy in the background he's sick so he's uh he's not doing the hottest and yeah um it's his first time being sick so i'm stressed out of my mind just because it's my first kid so he'll bounce back yeah you can't help not feeling that way i mean but you know it happens, and we got two other people to help you read here today, so we're good. So, anyway, um, but before we, we get into the reading, we usually do uh, current events. Um, and the first one I think we want to probably touch on is that it's a sign of the limitations of electoralism. Obviously, people, you know, the U.S. could Bolsonaro in so that the Amazon can just get ravaged for, you know, companies selling beef and, and things like that, and... Now it's Bolsonaro. not like they had to really coup him in. All they had to do was so Brazilian politics basically runs on bribes. Mm-hmm. So all they had to do was go, "Oh, you're taking bribes." The whole the issue is is everybody else who pointed the finger at Lula also was taking bribes because that's how you get everything fucking done. Okay, you have to bribe people, take bribes, blah 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 blah, just because of the corruption and. Now that Lula's gone to prison and shit, obviously he's going to do a push. Well, you would assume, uh, based on how he's acting currently, that he's going to be doing a huge anti-corruption push, which obviously terrifies these fascists and fucking kulaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's it's a big deal that Lula's back in there. But some of the things he promised, and, and I believe was probably fully behind, um, like stopping you know, the ravaging of the Amazon, the literal lungs of the earth. That was a big part of why, you know, the U.S. made sure Bolsonaro got in there in the first place. And that's not really slowing down at all. Um, because Well, right. It, uh, the big issue is he, Bolsonaro gave a bunch of people guns and said, go in there and kill people. Mm-hmm. Like, he deputized death squads, sent them in, told them to burn shit down. It frees up the land for cattle and soy. You know, if you want to take the time, like if you're a more uh, ambitious, you know, scoundrel, you can go in there and extract the palm oil, stuff like that. Um, But ultimately, there's trillions of dollars underneath indigenous lands. And that's what Bolsonaro campaigned on was to genocide indigenous people. That that's what he's always campaigned on. And he quite literally armed people. And we saw like something like eight different indigenous leaders get murdered uh, in his uh, presidency, something like that. And then there was plenty of attacks and deaths of not leaders. That's just not publicized. Right. Um, and then uh, you have, uh, like, even the fires in uh, Bolivia are more most likely these death squads sent in by Bolsonaro, you know. And um, in the U.S. history, according to the Fort Laramie Treaty, uh, whites weren't supposed to be going to the Black Hills to prospect for gold, but they were still doing that illegally. And then they would fight the U.S. government. And so if you're a settler colonial government and you have a bunch of people who like can't defend themselves, quote unquote, you know, not that they should have to, but you know, they don't, they're not armed with assault rifles and shit. Whereas these death squads are, you know, 
or you can either continue to help those people or you can team up with the people who are murdering those people, you know, and at a certain point, they're going to weigh that fiscal um, choice. And I hope that a lot of Lula's signaling that he's going to be very pro-Indigenous and support the Indigenous people stays, but that, you know, it's a settler colony, and that is something that very much worries me because if, like, short of sending in the military, what are you going to do to stop that? I mean, and that's if you acknowledge that that's actually what's happening, and I, I don't know if they want to, you know? Oh, no, absolutely, because, yeah, I mean, it's it's... <laughs> You got to worry about poking a bear, and, and they're worried about their own power, and that's exactly how corruption carries on. That's how bad systems carry on. Um, and I think the the other thing, again, environmentally concerning. I mean, it, it's fitting. We just came off the red deal for a reason. Um, is in and this was in Seattle. There was a major freon. It was a freon tanker. It was like a leak that was spraying everywhere. Well, okay, right. so in Tacoma, there was a vessel that was on fire uh, in the harbor. Um, the fishing vessel Kodiak Enterprise caught fire, which is weird. I'm, I'm guessing the Freon must be for, like, keeping the tanks a certain temperature. I don't, I, I don't, I don't understand why they would have that. But uh, they were at it's this a place lot called of Freon too. Yeah. <laughs> Trident Seafoods, uh, which is in Heilbos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that way. Waterway. Um, but the this fire that's going on uh, is like getting super. Well, it got like super close to the Freon, which there was like fifty five thousand gallons of. Diesel as well, I guess. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, the heat from the fire uh, then caused the pressure to build in the Freon tanks, which made them explode. And now, like, all up and down the Puget Sound is filled with fucking horrible, horrible fucking chemicals. Like, if you like salmon and you're noticing it's all being reduced in price... It might be because there's Freon in it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, this is the second major ecological de- disaster to hit Puget Sound from a boat in, what, like three weeks or something? Oh, what was the other one? Wasn't the other one like a big diesel spill, or was that from a train? I, maybe. That, I thought that, that was, was from a train. I think there was a train, yeah, that was That was a train. Through. That was diesel, yeah, I got everywhere. The reservation, yeah. Yes, that's right. So Puget Sound is just getting, like, hammered with death chemicals. Well, I mean, like, all of America. Like, it it would seem like a conspiracy if it wasn't for the fact that we're just, we've removed so many regulations. That's what's happening. You know, we've made it cheaper for businesses to do business, which is good for business. Terrible for our health. So many people... you know, use the expression house of cards without even thinking about what it is. This U.S. infrastructure is an actual house of cards. Okay. For people that have been on the, the internet way, way too long, this is, you know, Grover House load bearing drywall was is the American infrastructure system. Grover House. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then lastly, to touch on East Palestine again. They were transporting a bunch of the frickin' dirt, and the truck spilled in the fucking road. <laughs> crashed. Cool. So, double fucked by that. And were we, were we ready to begin? Yeah, I think Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I got much from you, Prez. Any thoughts on any of the current events before we get into uh, reading? No. Okay. Everything's just. Prez is like, I'm leaving this country, so I don't care. Yeah, I'm out of here. You guys can get fucked. Prez is like, uh, there's an election coming up, and the Republicans are running freaking Orange Hitler or fucking Hitler Hitler. Yeah, it'll probably be DeSantis. I mean, yeah. Get out of here before all of that starts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just. So, anyway. (laughs) 
on Gramsci. <laughs> We're on page seven. How do we make sense of an ideology which is not coherent, which speaks in our ear with the voice of freewheeling utilitarian market man, and in the other ear with the voice of respectable bourgeois patriarchal man? How do these two repertoires operate together? We are all perplexed by the contradictory nature of Thatcherism in our intellectual way. We think that the world will collapse as a result of logical contradiction. This is the illusion of the intellectual, that ideology must be coherent, every bit of it fitting together like a philosophical investigation. You mean those people that are like, oh my god, no, Trump Trump is, is like has crazy stuff. You know, sex with sex workers, and he's not a Christian leader, and da da da. You know, I mean, or the people that that um, um, think that like if the right wingers are anti-war one time, then then oh my God, that is an actual dictatorship, and you must be supporting fascism if you're being anti-imperialist. Like people just hate that ideology. Like doesn't have to be coherent because it has to be. You know, it has to be right there to, to grab. Um, but also, like, why would the poor wor- white worker work against their interest as a poor person? Well, for the, their whiteness, it doesn't have to be coherent. It doesn't have to make sense. The, it's called uh, a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, it's, it's, there's homeless also, Trump supporters. It, it happens. All of the people who, all of the, the shit lives who will go like, well, the data suggests something else. <laughs> and then hoping that that'll just sway some fascist. Yeah. Um, it's not well, going to happen. I mean, I kind of see it cut both ways, though, right? Like, you have the fascists whose ideology fucking isn't coherent, right? And they kind of take advantage of that fact. Yeah. You know, whether they're honest about it or not, I don't know. Or they're aware of it or not, I don't know. But their ideology certainly lends itself to this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, the whole purpose of what Gramsci called an organic, i.e. historically effective ideology, is that it articulates into a configuration different subjects, different identities, different projects, different aspirations. It does not reflect, it constructs a unity out of difference. We've been in the grip of the Thatcherite project, not since 1983 or 1979, as uh, as official doctrine has it, but since 1975 is the cli- climacteric, is that the word climacteric? I, I don't even know what yeah, that word is. I don't know what that word means. It's just <laughs> yes. climactic. Oh, okay. <laughs> the climactic <laughs> thing, I guess. Okay, 1975 is the climacteric in British politics. First of all, the oil hike. Secondly, the onset of capitalist crisis. Thirdly, the transformation of modern conservatism by the ascension of the Thatcherite leadership. That is the movement of reversal when, as Gramsci argued, national and international factors came to come together. It doesn't begin with Miss, Mrs. Thatcher's electoral victory, as politics is not a matter of elections alone. It lands in 1975, right in the middle of Mr. Callahan's political solar plexus. It breaks Mr. Callahan, already bro- a broken reed, in two. One half remains avonic- avuncular, paternalist, socially conservative. The other half dances to a new tune. One of the siren voices... Who, sing- who, oh. Who's Mr. Callahan again? Mr. Callahan yeah, was the leader of the British Labour Party right before Thatcher that was trying to deal with um. the oil crisis and everything. This is This is like the Jimmy Carter equivalent of the u.s death to carter sorry that's <laughs> the aim stance on that <laughs> one of the siren voices singing the new song in his ear is his son-in-law peter J. oh wait carter's are... dead isn't he no, he's no he almost oh he's sick yeah. yeah he's he's alive he um is his son-in-law, Peter J., one of the architects of monetarism in his missionary role as economic editor at the Times. He first saw the new market forces, the new sovereign customer or consumer, coming over the hill like the Marines. And, hearkening to these intimations of the future, the old man opens his mouth, and what does he say? The kissing has to stop. The game is over. Social democracy is finished. The welfare state is gone forever, we can't afford it. We've been paying ourselves too much. We've been giving ourselves a lot of phony jobs, having been too much of a swinging time. 
you can just see the English psyche collapsing under the weight of the illicit pleasures it had been enjoying. The permissiveness, the consumption, the goodies, it's all false. Tinsel and froth. The Arabs have blown it all away, and now we've got to advance in a different way. Mrs. Thatcher speaks to this new course. She speaks to something else, deep in the English psyche. It's masochism. The need which the English seem to have to be ticked off by nanny by nanny and sent to bed without a pudding. This is so British. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah. The calculus by which every good summer has to be paid for by 20 bad winters. The Dunkirk spirit. The worse off we are, the better we behave. She didn't propose us the giveaway society. She said, iron times, back to the wall, stiff upper lip, get moving, on your bike, dig in. Stick by the old, tired verities, the wisdom of old England. The family has kept society together, live by it. Send the women back to the hearth. Get the men out to the northwest frontier. Hard times to be followed much later by a return to the good old days. She asked you for a long leash, not one, but two, but three terms. By the end, she said, I will be able to redefine the nation in such a way that you will all, once again, for the first time since the empire started to go down the tube, feel what it is like to be part of Great Britain Unlimited. You will be able, once again, to send our boys over there, to fly the flag, to welcome back the fleet. Britain will be great again. Was this oh, hell yeah. Make this, Britain great again. Yeah, I was going to say, was this written before or after 2016? Well, no, you got to think Reagan was saying that shit, too. Make America well, great. Well, yeah, true. Okay. Um, but G- Great Britain Unlimited sort of sounds like a theme park. <laughs> I was thinking it sounded like a calling plan, like when you're traveling to, to England. <laughs> so. Something you'd see on a neon sign somewhere. I know that. <laughs> Um, people don't vote for Thatcherism, in my view. Oh, wait, before we do that, um, I do, do we have context for the Arabs have blown it all away? What that was in context to? Is that like, was that, the... was that from the Iranian revolution or was there something else? That, no, that was the oil that... crisis. Oh, oh. Yeah, okay, I was about to sense. say that the labor dude just saw, right? Yeah, Okay. People don't vote for Thatcherism, in my view, because they believe the small print. People in their minds do not think that Britain is now a wonderfully booming, successful economy. Nobody believes that. With three and three-fifths million people unemployed, the economy is picking up. That's a really dumb way to put that. That is three-fifths? Yeah, that's weird. Like, why would you not do 3.6? I don't don't know. Thank you for doing that. I didn't know how. Uh, everyone knows Lord Young's figures are economical with truth. That what Thatcherism is is that an ideology does is to address the fears, the anxieties, the lost identities of a people. It invites us to think about politics and images. It is addressed to our collective fantasies, to Britain as an imagined community, to the social imaginary. That Mrs. Thatcher has totally dominated that idiom, while the left forlornly tries to drag the conversation round to our policies. This is a monumentous historical project, the regressive modernization of Britain. To win over ordinary people to that, not because they're dupes or stupid, or because they're blinded by false consciousness, since in fact the political character of our ideas cannot be guaranteed by our class position or by the mode of production. It is possible for the right to construct a politics which does speak to the people's experience, which does insert itself into what Gramsci called the necessarily fragmentary, contradictory nature of common sense, which does resonate with some of their ordinary aspirations, and which, in certain circumstances, can recoup them as subordinate subjects into a historical project in which hegemonices... Is that how you... Hegemonices... Hegemony. Oh, oh, the action. I was reading it as like more than one hegemony in some weird way, and I was like, what? Um, (laughs) Hegemonizes what we used erroneously to think of as their necessary class interests. Gramsci is one of the first modern Marxists to recognize that interests are not given, but always have to be politically and ideologically constructed. 
Gramsci warns us in the notebooks that a crisis is not an immediate event, but a process. It can last for a long time. It can be very differently resolved by restoration, by reconstruction, or by passive transformism. Sometimes more stable, sometimes more unstable, but in a profound sense, British institutions, the British economy, British society, and culture have been in a deep social crisis for most of the 20th century. Gramsci warns us that organic crisis of this order... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, man, they are really going to hate 2020. (laughs) Um, Gramsci warns us that organic crisis of this order erupt not only in the political domain and the traditional areas of the industrial and economic life, and not simply in the class struggle in an old sense, but in a wide series of polemics and debates about fundamental sexual, moral, and intellectual questions. In a crisis in the relations of political representation and the parties on a whole range of issues which do not necessarily, in the first instance, appear to be articulated with politics in the narrow sense at all, that is what Gramsci calls the crisis of authority, which is nothing but the crisis of hegemony or the crisis of the state. Prez, your turn. I was muted. (laughs) We are exactly in that moment. We have been shaping up to such a crisis of authority in English social life and culture since the mid-1960s. In the 1960s, the crisis of English society was signaled in a number of debates and struggles around new points of antagonism, which appeared at first to be far removed from the traditional heartland of British politics. The left often waited patiently for the old rhythms of the class struggle to be resumed when in fact it was forms of the class struggle itself that were which were being transformed. We can only understand this diversification of social struggles in the light of Gramsci's insistence that in modern societies, hegemony must be constructed, contested, and won on many different sites as the structures of modern of the modern state and society complexify and the points of social antagonism pro- proliferate. Construction workers are not more working class than Starbucks baristas. You don't know that. <laughs> Their proletarian aesthetics, though, really speak. Yeah, to I mean, we what I think working class is. God, we do we do live in a society where how working class you are is is by how much you like country music, how racist you are, uh, how much you own a truck, that kind of thing. I got balls on my truck. That's how blue collar I am. (laughs) So one of the most important things that Gramsci has done for us is to give us a profoundly expanded conception of what politics itself is like, and thus also of power and authority. We cannot, after Gramsci, go back to the notion of mistaking electoral politics or party politics in a narrow sense, or even the occupancy of state power as as constituting the ground of modern politics itself. Gramsci understands that politics is a much expanded field, that especially in societies of our, of our kind, the sites on which power is constituted will be enormously varied. We are living through the proliferation of the sites of power and antagonism in modern society. What's interesting is he's almost predicting how like social media would rise to be a place of power, right? Yeah. I, I mean, Gramsci literally invented the terms civil society. Um, Is that a brag? (laughs) No. Sorry, sorry. As as an Indian, I'm... uh... (laughs) Um, No, but that that makes perfect sense because social media is just a modern form of media and media has long-controlled society. And this was in World War II or very explicitly, whether it was revolutionary agitprop or... Uh, the monstrous uh, propaganda of the Nazis or yellow journalism uh, in the United States throwing people into wars. Propaganda was very, you know, very explicit and, and well known as a subject of the times, too. So, well, we're going to get into this when we actually read Gramsci and not Stuart Hall, but Gramsci, in his definition of civil society, actually defines the media as a party in nice. and of itself. Nice. Um, Interesting. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, where were we? 
the the transition to this new phase is decisive for Gramsci. It puts directly on the political agenda the questions of moral and intellectual leadership, the educative and formative role of the state, the trenches and fortifications of civil society, the crucial issue of the consent of the masses, and the creation of a new type of civilization, a new culture. It draws the decisive line between the formula of permanent revolution and the formula of civil hegemony. It is the cutting edge between the war uh, between the war of movement and the war of position, the point where Gramsci's world meets ours. Uh, just a brief aside, he uses the war of movement and the war of position uh, after World War I to, dis- to distinguish between when you're doing some kind of propaganda project essentially to win people to your side and when you actually make a move to seize control of the state. Um, That's a that- good distinction. Yeah, he, he uses a lot of military metaphors, especially after World War I, where he, he literally treats it as a class war. Um, well, I mean, he was in class war. Let's yeah, be yeah, but, yeah. I mean, what else is revolution? Well, I'm just saying he's going up against Mussolini. <laughs> sure, yeah. He was, one of, he was one of the first, besides Mao, one of the only Marxists to use like military terms to discuss... Uh, revolution and ideology and all of that stuff. Um, anyway, that there's was not, LARPing. No, <laughs> he was LARPing from prison. That does not mean as some people read Gramsci that therefore the state doesn't matter anymore. The state is clearly absolutely central in articulating the different areas of contestation, the different points of antagonism into a regime of rule. The moment when you can get sufficient power in the state to organize a central political project is decisive. For when you can use the state to plan, urge, incite, and solicit punishment, incite, solicit, and punishment, to conform the different sites of power and consent into a single regime. That is the moment of authoritarian populism, Thatcherism simultaneously above in the state and below down there with the people. The, that concept of authoritarian populism actually caused like a whole fight within academia and the theories of fascism and stuff. Um, I was curious as to, yeah. is there like a good explanation, I guess, more so than what's given in the sentence? Well, he wrote, he writes like a bunch of papers on it. Um, but the, the long and short of it is, is that uh, you know, authoritarian populism is literally using populism it's like trump using populism like the modern republicans to kind of gain broad-based support for a fascist state essentially getting people to agree that yeah we do need a strong police state to maintain the economy and maintain social relations and all of that stuff i i have a feeling because the the thing that sucks is that's made from like two terms that are, are valid but have been misused politically as much as anything else, you know, especially in, in anti-communism and nonsense. And I have a feeling people probably, you know, there's probably liberals out there that would come across the fact that those two words are smushed together and misuse them <laughs> separately and are like really excited to hear that term. And so there's probably someone who hasn't read Gramsci um, who's a socialist, like authoritarian populism, that's just some liberal bullshit and like doesn't even like – you know, no, because it it sounds like it's it's bullshit if you only hear it in the context and never never from Gramsci with the explanation, never when the words made sense and weren't just something that was you know thrown out on CNN to, to say we should bomb a country. Well, Stuart Hall made this. This this was Stuart Hall's innovation. Um, but luckily, this was still before today when populism and and demagoguery and all of that bullshit became overused. To yeah. simplify things. Yeah, because I mean... Tribalism! They're, yeah, they're, they're real things, and they're real problems, and they're real ways to describe politics, but holy shit, they get fucked. They, they get misused so badly. Even then, Mrs. Thatcher does not make the mistake of thinking that the capitalist state has a single, unified political character. She is perfectly well aware, as the left is not, that though ca- the capitalist state is articulated to secure it 
is articulated to securing the long-term historical conditions for capital accumulation and profitability, though it is the guardian of certain kinds of bourgeois, patriarchal civilization and culture, that it is and continues to be an arena of contestation. Does this mean that Thatcherism is, after all, simply the expression of the ruling class? Of course, Gramsci always gives a central place to the questions of class, class alliances, and class struggle. Where Gramsci departs from classical versions of Marxism is that he does not think that politics is an arena which simply reflects already unified collective political identities, already constituted forms of struggle. Politics for him is not a dependent sphere. It is where forces and relations in the economy, in society, in culture have to be actively worked on to produce particular forms of power, forms of domination. This is the production of politics, politics as a production. This conception of politics is fundamentally contingent, fundamentally open-ended. There is no law of history which can predict what must inevitably be the outcome of political struggle. Politics depends on the relations of forces at any particular moment. History is not waiting in the wings to catch up, to catch up your mistakes into another inevitable success. You lose because you lose because you lose. The good sense of the people exists, but it is just the beginning, not the end of politics. Uh, just a note, good sense is the kind of quote-unquote correct political ideas that people have, even if it's a little incoherent. So like, for example, we have all of these conspiracy theories that, that uh, Bill Gates is running the world with microchips being implanted in you. There's a good sense in there that there's political disaffection, as specifically with a small group of people overriding democratic processes that we think still exist. So that's the little core of good sense in an otherwise incoherent and incomprehensible belief. And he's the largest landowner in America. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> a lot of a lot of dog whistles right on this, this good sense stuff, you know. Um, you, well, that's you that's see that the, with like the Soros complaints. Like Soros himself is not just another billionaire. He does specifically have the Open Society Foundation. Yeah. Um, but he's among other billionaires that that do all of this shit for their own interest in the name of capitalism. He's not like the one loner corrupting capitalism, and and so you know when he's picked out a lineup, you're like, oh yeah, that's some anti-Semitic bullshit. But <laughs> it's not like he's not in that lineup, you know. Yeah. Well, that that's kind of the crux of using good sense and organizing. You want to pick on what people are fundamentally on the same level as you, which is we shouldn't have Soros and Bill Gates and all of that using whatever bullshit NGO that or nonprofit that they invented to override democratic processes or, or whatever institutions that we hold up. So like Bill Gates has more influence on public health in Africa than, you know, however much we hate the UN than the UN or than a lot of these African countries. And it's the good sense in there that that's really fucked up and shouldn't be happening where the political education has to come in is leveraging that into forming some kind of communist Marxist idea and interpretation of the world rather it, than just going into the anti-Semitic dog whistles. Yeah. It, it's, it's the budding <laughs> before things get to anti-Semitic dog whistles, it's the budding um, ideas too, um, not just in, in, you know, cause we're just talking about the dog whistle, but also everything else, you know, the budding ideas where, you can get people it, it's a little on, on hard to get everybody on board with you know abolition right away if you just walk down the street and talk to to random people um but the people in your lives you can start with talking about like well why is all this funding going to policing instead of schools why is this you know going to to bombs and instead of here you know why how come when they say russia's bad they're giving them more money than they're you know to ukraine than they're giving us is russia what russia do to me yesterday you know like, how come if the Bureau of Land Management is supposed to be acting in the public goods interest, mm -hmm. why are they selling off Indian land through the BIA? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. If it's if that's supposed to be public land in the public interest, why is it being sold off to private bidders? You know, like you want to be radical, like do not send you know sell off uh, you know uh, indigenous land to the BIA. 
and and you should get there. You should take people there. If you're not getting there, you haven't done enough. But you know, you've got well, to. The start issue with is, is like land back calls for the destruction and ending of the Bureau of Land Management mm. and the National yes. Park Service because of yep. these reasons. Because they don't protect them, mm-hmm. they don't do their job. Yep. And, and if you so gave it, us that money, we would do that job. <laughs> um, and so starting with a good sense that, like, you know, this is supposedly oh-so public land and it's just getting sold off to the high, highest bidder, that's that's not okay. There's there's the good sense to start with, if if I'm understanding it right, Prez. Yeah, that's right. There's always a little seed there. Um, okay. It doesn't guarantee anything. Actually, he said, new conceptions have an extremely unstable position among the popular masses. There is no unitary subject of history. The subject is necessarily divided, an ensemble, one half Stone Age, the other containing, quote, principles of advanced science, prejudices from all past phases of history, institutions of a f- intuitions of a future philosophy, end quote. Both of these things struggle inside the heads and hearts of the people to find a way of articulating themselves politically. Of course, it is possible to recruit them to very different political projects. Especially today, we live in an era when the old political identities are collapsing. We cannot imagine socialism coming about any coming about any longer through the image of that single, singular subject we used to call the socialist man. Socialist man with one mind, one set of interests, one project is dead and good riddance. Who needs, quote, him, unquote, now with his investment in a particular historical period, with his particular sense of masculinity, shoring his identity up in a particular set of familial relations and a particular kind of sexual identity? Who needs him as the singular identity through which the great diversity of human beings and ethnic cultures in our world must enter the 21st century. This he is dead. Finished. Get wrecked, Pat sucks. Yeah, I was gonna say. (laughs) Gramsci looked at a world which was complexifying in front of his eyes. He saw the pluralization of modern cultural identities emerging between the lines of unevil, uneven historical development and ask the question, what are the political formations through which a new cultural order could be constructed out of this multiplicity of dispersed wills, these heterogeneous aims? Given that this is what people are usually really like, given that there is no law that will make socialism come true, can we find forms of organization, forms of identity, forms of allegiance, social conceptions, which can both connect with popular life and in the same moment transform and renovate it. Socialism will not be delivered to us through the trap door of history by some do... Deo ex machina. Deo ex machina, thank you. I, I don't know that one. <laughs> I watch a lot of cinnamon sins. <laughs> yep. Gramsci always insisted that hegemony is not exclusively an ideological phenomenon. There can be no hegemony without, quote, the decisive nucleus of the economic, unquote. On the other hand, do not fall into the trap of the old mechanical economism and believe that if you can only get hold of the economy, you can move the rest of life. I'm glad he brought that up because as soon as I heard the decisive nucleus of the economic, I was like, oh, is this going to get into, like, economism? (laughs) (laughs) The nature of political power in the modern world is that the nature of the nature of power in the modern world is that it is also constructed in a relation to political, moral, intellectual, cultural, ideological, ideological, and sexual questions. The question of hegemony is always the question of a new cultural order. The question which faced Gramsci in relation to Italy faces us now in the relation to Britain. What is the nature of this new civilization? Hegemony is not a state of grace which is installed forever. It is not a formation which incorporates everybody. The notion of a, quote, historic block, unquote, is precisely different from that of a pacified, 
homogeneous ruling class. Historical block was a term made by Gramsci to essentially uh, talk about the the ruling hege- uh, hegemony of that time. So, are do we have the fascist Republicans kind of swaying things right now? What are the class alliances behind that versus, for example, the historical block behind the New Deal? Oh, that makes sense. Um, did Shingmanitu, did you want to take over? I was going to say, should I take over? or You can go ahead, otherwise, unless you wanted me to. I've been talking about Gramsci in the light of, in the aftermath of, Thatcherism. Using Gramsci to comprehend the negative. Frick. Okay. <laughs> Restart. Golly gee willikers. <laughs> it entails a quite different conception of how social forces and movements in their diversity can be articulated into a set of strategic alliances to construct a new cultural order. You need not to reflect an already formed collective will, but to fashion a new one, to inaugurate a new historic project. I've been talking about Gramsci in the light of, in the aftermath of, Thatcherism. Using Gramsci to comprehend the nature and depth of the challenge to the left which Thatcherism and the new right represent in English life and politics. But I have at that same moment, inevitably, also been talking about the left. Or rather, I've not been talking about the left because the left, in its organized laborist form, does not seem to have the slightest conception of what putting together a new historical project entails. It does not understand the necessarily contradictory nature of human subjects, of social identities. It does not understand politics as a production. It does not see that it is possible to connect with the ordinary feelings and experiences which people have in their everyday lives, and yet to articulate them progressively to a more advanced modern form of social consciousness. It is not actively looking for and working upon the enormous diversity of social social forces in our society. Wait. It is not actively looking for and working upon the enormous... Okay. It doesn't see that it is. Are you going to explain that for me? Thank you. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I don't know why I feel dumb right now. It's it. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say that this is essentially saying like labor doesn't know how to do anything or connect with the masses at this point. Fair. It it sees the old interests as the traditional working man and doesn't think about like you know the burgeoning social movements and stuff. I'd say that's accurate. It'd be like being like an old union Democrat and not caring about, you know, Black Lives Matter right now. (laughs) Is not actively looking for and working upon the enormous diversity of social forces in our society. It doesn't see that it is in the very nature of modern capitalist civilization to proliferate the centers of power and thus to draw more and more areas of life into social antagonism. It does not recognize that the identities which people carry in their heads, their subjectivities, their cultural life, their sexual life, their family life, and their ethnic identities are always incomplete and have become massively politicized. I simply don't think, for example, that the current labor leadership understands that its political fate depends on whether or not it can construct a politics in the next 20 years, which is able to address itself not to one, but to a diversity of different points of antagonism in society unifying them in their differences within a common project. I don't think they have a grasp that the labor's capacity to grow as a political force depends absolutely on its capacity to draw from the popular energies of very different movements, movements outside the party, which it did not, could not set in play and which it cannot therefore administer quote unquote. It retains an entirely bureaucratic conception of politics. If the word doesn't proceed, yeah, if the word doesn't proceed out of the mouths of the labor leadership, there must be something subversive about it. If politics energizes people to develop new demands, that is a sure sign that the natives are getting re- restless. You must expel. Mm, sorry, <laughs> that the natives are getting restless. It's very colonial terminology. I think Uh, that was his exact point. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> you must get back to that fiction, the traditional labor voter, to that pacified Fabian notion of politics, where the masses hijack the experts into power, and then the experts do something for the masses. Later, much later, the hydraulic conception of politics, the hydraulic conception of politics. <sighs> Sorry, that's just an interesting um, description of how it works. Well, it's supposed to work, right? You say you like you push them up, and then they'll they'll send you the, mo- the momentum of what you need. Is the idea? Yeah, the hydraulic is just yeah. like. I guess yeah, that is kind of how it's just a very literal play on hydraulic uh, mechanics. I guess. Yeah, it is. It's, okay. it's like the the. It's a mechanical conception of politics, I guess. You get one input for one output. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That makes sense. That bureaucratic conception of politics has nothing to do with the mobilization of a variety of popular forces. It doesn't have any conception of how people become empowered by doing something, first of all, about their immediate troubles. Then the power expands their political capacities and ambitions so that they begin to think again about what it might be like to rule the world. Their bureaucratic pol- politics has ceased to have a connection with its mo- with this most modern of all revolutions, the deepening of democratic life. Without the deepening of popular participation in national cultural life, ordinary people don't have any experience of actually running anything. We need to re- reacquire the notion that politics is about expanding popular capacities, the capacities of ordinary people. And in order to do so, socialism itself has to speak to the people whom it wants to empower in words that belong to them as late 20th century ordinary folks. You'll have noticed that I'm not talking about whether the Labor Party has got its policy on this or that issue right. I'm talking about a whole conception of politics, the capacity to grasp in our political imagination the huge historical choices in front of the British people today. I'm talking about new conceptions of the nation itself. Whether you believe Britain can advance into the next century with a conception of what it is like to be English, quote unquote, which has been entirely constituted out of Britain's long, disastrous, imperialist march across the earth. If you really think that, you might... uh, you haven't grasped the profound cultural transformation required to remake the English. That kind of cultural transformation is precisely what socialism is about today. Now, political party of the left, however much it is centered on government, on winning elections, has, in my view, exactly this kind of decision before it. The reason why I'm not optimistic about the Optimistic about the mass party of the working class ever understanding the nature of the historical choice confronting it, it's precisely because I suspect labor still does secretly believe that there's a little bit of leeway left in the old economic, economic corporate, incremental, Keynesian game. That's a lot of descriptors. <laughs> it's all of the adjectives. Um It does think it could go back to a little smidgen of Keynesianism here, a little bit more of that welfare state there, a little bit of that old Fabian thing. Actually, although I don't have the cataclysmic vision of the future, I honestly believe that the option is now closed. It's exhausted. Nobody believes in it anymore. Its material conditions have disappeared. The ordinary British people won't vote for it because they know their bones, they know in their bones that life is not like that anymore. And this, going back from the hydraulic conception of politics, obviously describing electoralism all the way down through here, I mean, this sounds really familiar, right? They're, they're just electoral supposed left party that's not so left is just trying to reach back to its same old bags of tricks that had people fooled and got it the reputation as left, but it's just not going to keep working. It's breaking down. Well, so he that that whole Fabian thing that he's mentioned a couple times, that's uh, referencing the Fabian Society, which was one of the f- first organized socialist parties, supposedly socialist, um, in Britain from the 1880s. They're still around today. 
Um, and they're super, super like slow social Democrat, like even slower than the radical ones that cause that kind of cause the outpouring in Italy, then the Soviet Union and Germany, like even less radical than that. So, yeah, <laughs> basically <laughs> kind of goes back to what I said with the old Union Democrat. I mean, like Bernie Sanders type things, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Bernstein, right? Was that the yeah, social democrat? Bern, yep, Bernstein. Yep. All right, I contributed to that conversation. <laughs> Let's continue. <laughs> what Thatcher's, Thatcherism poses in its radical way is not what we can go back to, but rather along which route are we going? Are we to go forward? In front of us is the historic choice: capitulate to the Thatcherite future, or find another way of imagining it. Don't worry about Mrs. Thatcher herself. She will retire to Dulwich, which is a place. That's in where England. she's from. Okay. Okay. <laughs> is this place special or? Um, can you still hear me? Sorry, my microphone. Yeah, like we can hear you. Out of corrected volume levels after that laugh. <laughs> anyway, don't worry about Mrs. Thatcher herself. She will retire to Dulwich, but there are, there are lots more third, fourth, and fifth generation Thatcherites, dry as dust, sound to a man, waiting to take her place. They feel themselves now on the crest of a wave. They are at the forefront of what they think is the new global expansion of capitalism. They are convinced that this will obliterate socialism forever. They think we are dinosaurs. They think we belong to another era. As socialism slowly declines, a new era will dawn, and these new kinds of possessive men will be in charge of it. They dream about real cultural power. And labor in its softly, softly, and its softly, softly. Don't rock the boat, hoping the election polls will go up way. Actually has before it the choice between becoming historically irrelevant or becoming or beginning to sketch out an entirely new form of civilization. I don't say socialism lest the word is so familiar to you that you think I mean just putting the same old program, uh, program. program. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Uh, we all know about back. We all know about back on the rails. I am talking about a renewal of a whole socialist project in the context of modern social and cultural life. I mean, shifting the relations of forces, not so the utopia becomes the day after the next general election, but so the tendencies begin to run another way. Who needs a socialist heaven where everybody agrees with everybody else, where everybody's exactly the same? God forbid. I mean, a place where we can begin the historic quarrel about what a new kind of civilization must be. That's what it's about. Is it a? Is it possible that the immense new material, cultural, and technological capacities, far outstripping Marx's wildest dreams, which are now actually in our hands, are going to be politically homogenized, hegemonized? Uh, yeah, did I say it right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. For the reactionary modernization of Thatcherism, or can we seize on those means of history making, of making new human subjects? and shove them in the direction of a new culture. That's the choice before the left. One should stress, quote-unquote, Gramsci wrote, quote, the significance which in the modern world political parties have in the elaboration and effusion of conceptions of the world. Wait. This is a single quote from Gramsci to end the essay. No, but I, I thought I skipped a word. Political parties have in the elaboration and diffusion of conceptions of the world because essentially what they do is to work out the ethics and politics corresponding to these conceptions and act, as it were, as their historical laboratory. Okay, so that like means we, we use history as, as, our, as our laboratory? Is that, history is, that... is the laboratory of class struggle. Okay. So it's like a, it's like Stalin would write, right? You know, in the crucible of revolution. Exactly. 
Um, right, well, that that is definitely where we're we're wrapping up because of time and um, because of where it's, we are. Yeah, it's we crazy. ended that essay, so we're on yeah. to the. Are we on to the notebooks now? No, there's one more. All right, Prez has another one for us before we even get to read. Gramsci <laughs> himself not being. You guys cool. will thank me. Don't worry. Yeah. All right. All right. We, we believe you. Putting together a reader is, is is hard work. So we're 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 going to go into this feeling way smarter than we actually are. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but as for that, I mean, obviously, it should people should hear that and connect it to modern electoral politics and like, I mean that 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 shit's just it. Again, there's a lot of stresses where like you shouldn't overassume, you know. Um, Overassume truths, but you have to you have to act with conviction and understand the world. And so, things like electoralism is not a path to power. That doesn't mean you can't use it at all. But think about how useless it is broadly. You have to really take politics a whole new way. What a party you ha- is. You have, you have to-, to use it strategically. Yeah, yeah. What a, what a party is, right? You can't just think of as like the election grabbing political machine a party is a political is an organized political machine but that can have dynamic meanings right and in socialists our parties should be out there doing on the ground work for people um you know they should be out there educating people they should be building the structures that we hope replace the existing power structures and so yeah, I mean, like, don't just get stuck in in some static thing. It, the, the socialism is is real, but it's dynamic. You know, we can't say like the workers will all be on our side because, well, maybe they're not, right? Maybe maybe somebody has you know an, an uncle that's a cop or some shit like that, and like there's there's all kinds of of different interests flying at each other at the same time, and we've got to learn how to speak to people and how to identify you know who has revolutionary potential. Um, and, and belongs in, you know, any kind of a a cadre or vanguard party. Like if, if this shit worked the way like folks like Bernie Sanders thought it worked, right. And people would just vote in their best interests. Well, he would have been president. We would have had universal health care, probably would have avoided the whole COVID bullshit. I mean, Bernie Sanders would be nothing. He would be a right wing garbage pail if people actually acted in their interest. Like, maybe, but like you're talking, you're talking Norway, right? Like, I mean, like no, I mean, like if people actually it, it acted in their interest, we'd have social. You know, I mean, it, it, like acting in their interest is not this guarantee. And plus, people have dynamic interests too. Well, that's what I'm saying. If people were acting in their actual interests, you know, like. Like, well, what's best for them, not necessarily what they think is their best interest, right? Or what is their personal best interest in their current circumstance. Like, police reform is pretty important for a lot of people, and that's why I'm more than willing to vote for somebody who's running on a platform of police reform. Mm -hmm. But, well, not reform, but, like, defunding is what I hope. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, you know, reform is what I'll settle for, I guess. Like revolution is what I'm aiming for. <laughs> yeah, you, electoralism shit. <laughs> you could you could correctly identify what people's interests are, what their most important interests are, and how they would act against it, and completely not be considering that there is another thing that is in their interest that they're acting on, even if it's less important and contradictory. And it's not that like they're stupid and they're not realizing it or whatever. They're just valuing that interest higher, and you don't understand that interest. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean you should bow to that interest if that's a reactionary interest. Um, but that means that, you know, you can't just assume that you'll just get people on board. This is a struggle. This is a hard political project. And the thing you notice is big swings in gaining power actually get more people behind you. People like to be, you know, on a winner. It's an uphill battle and, and people ride momentum. They really do. Yeah, they want to be on a winning team. I mean... Like this they is want to feel hope. Sports. Yeah, they they, they like, want to feel hope, right? And so, you know, like we're playing team sports for the communist team, which the communist team mm-hmm. is actually different from the rest of the teams because we address things as it exists, materially and historically, right? Yeah, but but I was saying when when people do that, that should, that should give you a sense of hope. You'd be like, man, how are we going to get all the masses on board? 
but you don't. You get a chunk of the masses on board and you take out, you know, radical action where you're gaining power and you're supporting other masses and then you're growing masses on board um, from on one hand because of the work you're doing for them. And then as you gain size and power, on the other hand, people will get irrationally more behind you because people, you know, they'll have hope in you, right? You know, if you're just seen as, as some like little, you know, in the corner powerless person they're just you know they're going to get some ableist belief and and put you in 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 like oh they're just one of the crazies and and you know write you off right but if you're gaining power it's oh well maybe i should listen to this i mean you saw that with 2020 with the big uprisings people that you know you never would have before listened were like oh you know maybe this police brutality stuff is bad and then as soon as that went out of the spotlight and didn't have a big powerful push and have the the microphone all of a sudden those reactionaries you know jumped and entrenched back in and we are going to fight that kind of propaganda machine the entire time it's always been there it's not going to stop but you know gaining power gains people behind you and then of course your your actions gain people i mean people see who you are see what you're fighting for and you're building those power structures to replace things and so you know that stuff works in unison you have to you have to imagine what a modern political party is when you think of yourself as a party you can't just think of what an old guard party is you know this is not either electoralism or you're running around robbing banks until <laughs> until you build up you know your power while a state collapses this is a whole different animal where you're going to have to build things in a modern way we can't officially condone extrajudicial actions <laughs> they're not a bad idea though no 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 no, 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 no. I will have no part of this yes uh, anyway yeah i am not i'm not condoning there's no there's no value statement or ideas here. I we just mean like people need to be fed and clothed and 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 protest is is power and then you have to ask, well, what power does that, you know, we we read on protest before too. So, you know, you understand like the limitations of that and and where that leads and and where that's useful and where that's, you know, fetishized. Um, but those are all dynamic things, right? We're not saying like, hey, go um do anything specific here exactly you you gotta figure out what's good for your conditions now we can't hold your hand on the internet sometimes especially as it gets worse the best theory comes from podcasts i don't know what you guys are. yeah that's true because <laughs> you know on podcasts you could be completely open yes anyway so you know maybe take a lesson at the end here and rethink listening to podcasts too much and maybe like crack open these books yourself and read along with us uh this is of course mark's madness if you're reading along with us uh perhaps you want to reach out to us at our emails at chunkaluta1973 at gmail.com bands at turtle island at gmail.com mark's madness 1973 wait mark's madness pod mark's madness pod not not or, or or the Twitters, which is at, at Mark's Marnus Pod. My personal is at Bands Island. Or you can go to the Chunkaluta Networks at Chunkaluta 1973. Um, otherwise, there's also a Patreon if you really like what we're doing here and you uh, want to support us for some reason and keep us doing this. Um, it pays people's bills and pays for gardening and wood and food and blankets and i don't know it depends on what's going on that week i guess <laughs> but yeah uh so check that out i think it's uh, zicato's tin can until uh i don't know it gets a better name um that's chunkaluta related it was I don't know. We're we're figuring things out. And then there's a website that's going to be coming out soon. So you're also going to help pay hosting fees with that Patreon money. So please reach out uh, uh, or join the Patreon. And if you join for a dollar, you can join a Discord. That's the unofficial Mark's Madness server. Or you can go to the Mark's Madness Twitter and go to the official discord server for free um 
Yeah. Not really a good salesman there. No. We're, <laughs> we're communists. It's just sort of like how it worked out. Pay so. some money for the unofficial thing, but you can go to the real thing for free. But <laughs> the unofficial one is the official Bands of Turtle Island Chunkaluta Network combined server. So that's just good. Just give us money, otherwise you're a bad leftist. Yeah, there you go. There you go. (laughs) So with that, this has been Mark's Badness Pod. We read books. My name's David. Are we? Oh, are we not? Oh, we still doing more plugs? Oh no, because we already did. uh, We already did twice on this book. Oh. So we're gonna do it every other episode now. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then we'll until we we tuck her out. Halfway through the book and say next book or something. Yeah, see, I just pictured doing it every episode until halfway through. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't have to, but no, that was what fine. I pictured. I was going by feel. <laughs> Nathan used to make me do it. Let me be. This is my freedom. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name's David. My name's Shumani, too. My name's Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Talk show.